As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. That whenever you grant perspective, you grant power. We've buried our heads so deeply you know, we're sort of all, we're all playing our own little mini games. We like to organize the world into these simplified little systems of elements and simple rules. And we sort of organize these mini games of life. And then, you know, we try to win them. Today's episode is about free will. Is there even a theory of everything and the physics of idealism? That is the notion that consciousness is fundamental and only. We also touch on interpretations of quantum mechanics where the observer has a privileged role in creating the universe. Matt O'Dowd is a science communicator and an astrophysicist, a professor at the City University of New York, involved in gravitationally lensed quasars which touch on the crisis in cosmology, which is something that we'll speak about in this episode and for sure in the next one at length. Matt is also the host of PBS Spacetime, which has over 2 million subscribers. I think it's 2.8. And they're the largest physics and space show on YouTube. And in case you're wondering who I am, my name is Kurt Jaimungle. I have a background in mathematical physics, and this channel is Theories of Everything, which is dedicated to the theoretical physics endeavor of understanding gravity and quantum field theory, but as well as we investigate consciousness and the fundamental role it may have. Thank you so much, and enjoy this episode with Matt O'Dowd. Matt. Matt, 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 <laughs> I've been watching you for years, so this is, th I'm, this is a treat, this is an honor, man, it's good to speak with you. Well, it's my pleasure, I've been watching you for months. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and really enjoyed your stuff, dude. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so I want to talk about PBS Space Time, which is what I know you from, but that's not all you do, it's not your full-time job, so... Firstly, let's get people who are unacquainted with you acquainted. So what is PBS Spacetime and how did you get involved? Okay, so PBS Spacetime, it's a YouTube show, um, uh, a PBS YouTube show, PBS Digital Studios. Uh, we do near weekly episodes, a few times a month, um, and we explore a huge range of topics by now because we've been doing it for seven years uh, and we've gone pretty deep in, you know, topics of space and time. Uh, and, you know, so physics, astronomy, astrophysics, uh, 
but this encompasses a huge amount of stuff, of course. Um, physics is enormous, um, but we tend to explore topics in, you know, cosmology and quantum mechanics and, you know, as, as mind-bendy as we can. Um, with the proviso that we uh, are strictly scientifically rigorous. Right, which makes it much different than the content that at least used to be out on YouTube and television, which was much more watered down and mystifying, playing up the aspect of the wave and the particle and pretty much just staying at that and saying there could be extra dimensions without showing many, if any, equations. Yeah, I mean, and we actually don't show too many equations, but we do show some. I think our philosophy is more that, um, you know, people have been consuming science media for many decades now, you know, uh, since since before Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And um, it's like people have been in school for five decades and we decided that some wanted to graduate <laughs> um, to stretch an analogy. But we, you know, we have the philosophy that, our audience is smart. People are smart. And, and you know, the only difference is that they didn't make poor decisions about staying in university for way too long. And so they don't have the same level of specialised knowledge, but they do have good brains. Uh, and, and perhaps more to the point, they have fantastic bullshit detectors. And so they're very highly tuned to when, you know, when they're being talked down to. Right. Uh, so, so that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to um, bring maybe a peek behind the curtain of how you know the the particular sciences that we love the most actually happen, and what some of the very poppy results that you see in in the media actually mean. And uh, yeah, we talked before this, and we realized we have several commonalities. So one is we both research physics. The next is we distill that physics or that research down to something that's consumable while correctly portraying the phenomenon. So that is not being patronizing about it. And then number three is filmmaking. So why don't you tell the audience and myself about this film and why it's important to you? Sure. <clears throat> okay. So, um, so uh, you know, I to in answering this question to also partially answer your last question, which I missed. Um, I didn't start out planning to make film. Um, you know, I started out as an astrophysics researcher. I'm a professor at City University of New York. Um, you know, I teach physics. I do physics. Uh, I, I have a research program in astrophysics. Um, but um, around seven years ago, uh, I... Um, well, I have a friend. So my friend, uh, Gabe Perez Giz, who's a New York cosmologist um, at the time, um, was doing this little show with PBS called Space Time. Um, he did several really out-of-this-world episodes, um, but had decided to move on. And so there was a bit of a scramble in the New York astrophysics community because we'd all grown up on Carl Sagan. Uh, and, you know, we all had this little desire to um, and not fill his shoes, but we saw the importance of the mission. You know, there's no point learning how big the universe is if you don't tell anyone about it. And so 
So it tends to be, you know, a, a, a pattern among, uh, particularly among people in astro that we like to talk about this stuff. So, so I jumped in um, and for whatever ridiculous reasons, I, I ended up um, stepping into Gabe's shoes and that was seven years and what do you mean that there's no point in learning about it if you don't talk about it? Oh, so I guess I mean that, uh, you know, a bunch of ivory tower academics knowing how amazing the universe is and, you know, talking to each other about it, but never, never, you know, sort of, let's say, leveling up humanities collective reality in that way it's it, it is it is a more beautiful thing it's objectively more beautiful if more people um have um, a more expansive understanding of of the crazy universe that they live in um you know particularly in astrophysics we're not we, we don't produce a lot of industry value you know we're not we don't make a lot of new useful nanomaterials for example um and so the the primary use of the field is perspective. Okay, so the story of my life. So I was no, <laughs> I. Uh, so so we we really dug into um, to space time, and it was successful beyond what we imagined could be could be possible. And you know, really, what had happened is that we'd, you know, maybe let's say. We can credit ourselves with a little intuition here, but I think there was also some luck that we tapped into a very hungry market for um, for much more authentic science journalism. Um, and so, you know, we, um, I mean, you know, you you need to go and look at our uh, our video library on YouTube and. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah, there will be an overlay right now for the audience, and I highly recommend you subscribe to PBS Space Time. <laughs> uh, but it also, you know, over that time, um, took the little little spark of passion that I had for science communication, which had previously been expressed, you know, doing public talks and, you know, doing observing nights uh, for the public and things like that. And I realized that, wow, there's really something big that can be done um and so um so this film uh it's actually not a pbs production it's a production with my pbs team as well as uh my partner bahar gulipur who is a science journalist uh specializing in neuroscience and ai mm. um, and um, so this is what this is this is our collective mission, but it, in a way, it's the culmination of our our efforts. Um, and um, so, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about the film. Um, yeah, I would love to hear. So, uh, so the idea—I mean, the film is called "Inventing Reality," and the idea is, you know, it, it, as I said, it's a synthesis. Um, not just of what we've learned, but um, it's an attempt to sort of put it together, step back, take stock, and look for paths forward. So, so maybe a, a simple way to say it is that it's a movie about humanity's search for what is fundamental. Um, and 
of course, there are many ways that we seek truth, but the focus of this film is the pursuit of the most fundamental levels of reality through particularly physics, but also science in general. Um, and, okay, so, you know, it's about the question, what is reality? But it's also about the meta questions. Um, so, you know, digging into the potential answers to the question itself, but also to question that question. So, um, you know, physics is insanely successful, almost unbelievably successful in its predictive power about nature. Um, but uh, there's there's a sense, and I think a growing sense, that physics has stalled in, I think, what some once thought was this final sprint to a theory of everything, you know, to, to neatly tie up reality in a bow, have this final equation that described everything. Uh, and so, uh, so now many physicists are asking, how do we approach the question differently? Um, and not just physicists, a lot of the thinking is reaching across into other disciplines, um, drawing on other disciplines. Mm. Okay, can you give an example of that? Because you said you would like to investigate fundamental reality from not just a physics perspective, but a science perspective in general. What would that look like if not physics? Great question. So... So I guess um, there's a, a, a many ways to uh, answer that, but let's just use one. So uh, quantum mechanics is weird beyond comprehension in a very literal sense. We still don't get it. Um, but it's clear that there is a an uncanny and fundamental link between the observer and the nature of the observed, the so-called measurement problem. And this is a an unresolved uh, um, conundrum um, that was sort of swept under the rug, you know, back in the 1920s uh, when we realised that there was some kind of in-between observations. There, 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 is, there is a level of indeterminacy to nature uh, in which nature appears to occupy multiple states at once or no state and is only defined on observation and all of this all this beautiful weird stuff and um, there there was a lot of debate about you know basically swinging between a type of idealism and a type of realism um, questioning the reality of reality um, and how fundamental the observer is but this was pushed aside. Uh, because uh, quantum mechanics was incredibly successful at predicting the behavior of the universe. And so, you know, the old adage, shut up and calculate, uh, really drove the, the philosophy of how quantum mechanics evolved um, in that we just used it. We, we used it to make amazing predictions. I think it's reasonable to say we used quantum mechanics to build our modern world, you know, transistor. The shut up and calculate mindset is what? It is. Yeah, yeah. It is. So, so for quite some time, it was considered career suicide for an academic to ask questions like, "But what does quantum mechanics actually mean? Um, what is happening between measurements?" For example, so the the what we call the interpretation of quantum mechanics. So the equations work. You know, the Schrödinger equation or the equations of quantum field theory. They work incredibly well. But asking the question, what do these equations mean? You know, what is the 
physical story that they embody about the world. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen the interview on Toe with Tim Maudlin. I have not seen that one yet. Okay, well, he would say, so he's a philosopher of physics, and he would say quantum theory, they don't teach you quantum theory, they teach you a method of calculating, and a true theory should give you an account of ontology. So a true theory is a combination of math and metaphysics, or at least like a supposed account of the metaphysics. And he said that's what most interested him in physics, and they would talk about that on the first lecture, just to get you involved. And then after that, it's calculating Green's functions. Yeah. And he said, I'm not terribly interested in that. I want to know what is going on. Yeah. And he said, now, if you ask a physics professor what is going on, they say, go to the philosophy department. That's not for here. Yeah. He said, that's not how it's been historically for all of physics, even though physics wasn't coined until fairly recently. But for since even Newton wanted to know what the heck is going on. One yeah, and, he, and Newton acknowledged that he didn't know what his so-called theory of gravity meant. It, 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 he acknowledged that it was not ontological in any way. It was descriptive, and in the in the same way as um, you know, as Newton's law of universal gravitation is descriptive of gravity. It doesn't explain why gravity happens. Quantum mechanics is descriptive of the behavior of subatomic particles, but doesn't explain the why. I've almost never had a problem with superposition because I see the math as a description. And then it's only an issue if you try and make some correspondence between that math and say, what the heck is going on? So some people would say, yeah, but it's not as simple as if you have two goats, so two plus two goats equals four goats. That I understand. However, even there, two plus two equals four, but two plus two also equals five plus minus one, just as easily. And so you can say, well, what the heck is five goats and then a minus one goat? Right. Does it live in a superposition of five and a minus one? So unless you have a problem with even ordinary addition, then to me, I don't have a problem with superposition. I just see it as, okay, this is a description. So what do you think about that? What do you make of that? I think it's a great example. Um, and, it, it, and, and, and it conveniently gets to the point that I was rounding on anyway, uh, which is that we have an intuition about mathematics. We have our own inbuilt math engine in our brains. Um, and it it's, you know, we know that that our intuitions about math do not encompass all math. For example, we don't have an intuition about imaginary numbers. But imaginary numbers are, are perfectly serviceable mathematical tools. And in in a you know, in a sense they're real in that they're important for understanding quantum mechanics but the uh our the worlds that we describe the the worlds that you know our the our subjective world which is a model and our scientific models um are so heavily influenced by what we intuitively think is possible but we don't we shouldn't necessarily trust what we think is possible based on you know the 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 math and physics engine that evolution gave us um and so this is one uh interdisciplinary area we need to maybe talk to neuroscientists and to you know people who are uh to cognitive scientists and 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 even people who are working in ai to understand what some of the biases might be in how a neural network like our own constructs its reality. So that's what you meant when you said 
there is physics to understand fundamental reality. But if we also want to understand what do we mean when we say fundamental reality, we can use tools of neuroscience to understand our own biases. Well, that's so, so that, that aspect of understanding ourselves is important. What are our biases? But also if we want to approach things like the, the measurement problem, I think, you know, may, maybe understanding how we construct our subjective reality won't get us there. Maybe it'll be helpful, but there are, I, I feel like there are um, areas in, for example, well, statistics, probability theory. I mean, you know, these things physicists are pretty quick to, to draw on, for example, various Bayesian interpretations of quantum mechanics. Um, but I also think that we can draw on um, what you might broadly call systems theory, so how complex systems emerge um, to understand the different hierarchies of complexity okay um i mean this is there are so many rabbit holes that i'm avoiding leaping right down i'm happy to go down them uh one by one but sure uh, but they're deep do you find that you're having a terrible amount of fun when you're delving into the more metaphysical side of physics and interpretations so this film in particular than you are with your own research (laughs) uh Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. 
it's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. It's funny, yeah. So, you know, I, I pursued astrophysics because it, it honestly it just seemed like the most fun, asking big questions about really big things. Um, but... Uh, but over time, I've become more and more interested in the fundamental and, and making space-time has been a big part of that also. Um, and so you know, I, I have no regrets. The, the universe is awesome, um, and it's, it's really fun to solve big problems about the universe. Um, and also the, the skills I've picked up doing that sort of work, I, I'm able to bring to bear on some of these other questions. That said... You know, I'm not a quantum theorist. I'm not even what, you know, most people would call a theoretical physicist, uh, which means there are there are some skills that I'm going to have to work harder on. Uh, and so this movie is about, you know, in a way it's a personal journey um, in that I, I really want to take stock of the field um, and, and the fields uh, and to sort of get a sense of where humanity stands in this question and what the paths forward could be. Um, and, yeah, so that there's that personal level, but I also feel like it, you know, it's it's a contribution, I think, at some level. Um, it's, you know, we're by no means the only people talking about this stuff, but I think there's a rising collective interest in this big picture um, asking questions like, you know, what are we doing anyway? What 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 is the goal of <clears throat> being human and asking questions about the world? And um, and you know, I think I think um, anything we can do to sort of bring that collective curiosity together is is useful, especially these days. Help me understand how one goes from physics or even science which is, to me, a description again. How does one go from that description to an ought? So that is what we should do. You said that ultimately you'd like to be... <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, the, the, the easy answer is just that whenever you grant perspective, you grant power. Um, you know, it's the same reason we do science communication on YouTube. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like it, it's no secret that we are a deeply factionalized species right now. Fractionalized, uh, meaning? Yeah, yeah, factionalized. Like factionalized, faction, sorry. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we've 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 buried our heads so deeply. You know, we're sort of all we're all playing our own little mini games. You know, where where we we're overwhelmed. You know, by by the buzz of all media, by just the 
stuff going on in the world right now. And so we we like to organize the world into these simplified little systems of elements and simple rules. And we sort of organize these mini games of life. And then, you know, we try to win them, like whether we're winning games of political dynamics at work or, you know, trying to just stay solvent and collect enough retirement or, you know, the the game of empowering your chosen in-group. So we 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 um we diminish the world so that so that we can handle it. Um and I guess the thing that science can do is that it can show us um it can show us bigger landscapes. Right. We we are only able so if you can imagine the infinite landscape of you know possible ways to live your life, possible things you can do, ways to be. Uh we we tend to um to blinker up and define these um these manageable sub-landscapes and we you know navigate those little spaces. Um but of course we inevitably come to believe that our chosen little sliver is the world as it really is. Okay, we 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 mistake the subgame for the game, and our compactification of reality in our minds becomes reality. And um, and I am as guilty as most in that. Um, but really, I'd say any type of education broadens perspective and shows us grander games, um, and that there are enormous landscapes of possibility, you know, outside whatever rut we happen to be in. And so, uh, so you know, exposing people to new information um, is is usually always good. Okay, there are exceptions, but science I find particularly important and powerful because it's, in a way, it's general. So it's not science isn't about the subject matter; it's about the methodologies. Okay, the methodologies, if you like, of truth finding. Um, and those methods can be applied, at least at some level, to any question or any field uh, in ways that improve our ability to explore the landscapes of, you know, that aspect of reality. Um, and so, uh, so I mean, granting people the access to some of the just the things we've learned in in science that are incredibly powerful, the methodologies, the ways of thinking, even just the habits of thought are um, just super powerful tools for improving how people even live their lives because these, these ideas become embedded, uh, become subliminal. Um, and I guess I maybe the way I think about science is that it's a, uh, like a formalization of how our brains work naturally. Um, if you think of our minds as tools for navigating the world, and, and that's the physical world, the social world, and you know, worlds of arbitrary abstraction. Um, and so, so cognition, which is the process of asking questions, seeking evidence, formulating models and hypotheses, and making choices, um, which sounds an awful lot like science. And in our in our brains, that's all happening constantly and mostly subconsciously, um, and and also, I guess, an important thing is that we don't just do this individually. So we 
engage in this sort of collective cognition, you know, through discussion with each other in an explicit way, but also you could argue that we are cogitating as a society through art and religion and politics and, um, you know, so we can think about culture, I guess, as this collective cognition um, and even a, you know, I like to think of culture as a, a search algorithm for for truth. Okay, so if part of culture is a world model, okay, and every culture has its consensus reality, then uh, then you know that that little kind of m- local minimum in the possibility space of what the world is and how to live it is something that that culture found, and. So, you know, cultural evolution, I guess, sort of navigates the landscape of possible ways to think about the world and about ourselves. Um, and and so if science then in some ways systematizes cognition and can make us better at it individually or collectively, then we get better at mapping the landscape. Um, Here's the thought that occurs to me. If science is the epitome of making systematic what is our cognition and what we're trying to do or what you're up to with this documentary is not only investigating reality, but trying to avoid some of our own cognitive biases. But I imagine if science is modeling the way that our brains work, but our brains have a bias, then how does one scientifically not have this bias built in? It's super hard, and science is no guarantee against this. But I guess the 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 one to me one of the most incredible things about the scientific revolution is that it gave us at least the potential for meta awareness um, of of the fact that there even is a possibility landscape, you know, versus a singular ground truth. Um, and the potential for the awareness that there's a distinction between reality versus a model of reality. Philosophy also, okay. So, so I think you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I may be mixing together the 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 um, breakthroughs of of enlightenment and um, and and you know, so so th- these fields of, of of rational thought um allow us to at least in principle know our that, that biases are possible mm-hmm. this might be inaccurate um so you, you know i i talk about culture as a search algorithm for truth um so i, I feel like science allows us to upgrade that search algorithm so that we're less likely to get stuck in a local minimum but because we introduce exploration into like with the the explicit ability to explore to our little a little, little uh search algorithm um robot whatever it is a little valley crawler and uh and it also allows us to explicitly incorporate uncertainties into whatever the loss function of that search algorithm um so it's like a a meta expansion of our ability to uh, to um, explore possibility space. So, okay, another thought that occurs to me is this is not a thought that 
this is not a viewpoint that I have necessarily, but it's one that I'm sure that someone or some people who watch may have thought, okay, so we have a cultural model of reality. Every culture has this. When we have science, we have something that we believe is acultural. So it's, it's non-cultural, it's objective. However, they would say, yeah, but that's a Eurocentric way of thinking because we're, of course, we're going to say our culture is the one that has the objective method. So what would your response be to that? I, 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 I really value this um, being brought to attention because it's true that, uh, that you know, when, when we talk about science, it's not one thing. Okay, so there there sort of is a Eurocentric culture that comes under the label of science, but that's not all. That's not all that science is, um, and so science is also a revolution in our ability to to cogitate um, on on many levels, um, and that is bundled with other cultural factors uh in in some ways for instance but it, but it also but it, but it also has its independent existence uh, and the value of the kind of the raw upgrade that science gave us is that in in principle and I've been careful to say in principle in principle it allows us the type of meta-awareness that can lead us to those sorts of biases. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to say that uh, the, the Western scientific method is how brains work. It's absolutely not as simple as that. But there are, there are correlations that are powerful and that I, I think are, um, you know, transcultural and, and that, and that uh, there are wisdom traditions that talk about these things in very different ways um, that right. you know, we should spend more time <laughs> trying to translate between. Yeah, that's my response as well. Well, firstly, one is to say that science is not all in the sense that, well, that's not only my point of view. Hilary Putnam said something similar and same with Feynman. He had this famous quotation about logic is not all, that one needs hearts. And secondly, that to call science Eurocentric is to not recognize the contributions from many other cultures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was echoing uh, your language a little bit there. Um, you know, the, the fact is that you know, a bunch of old white European men dominated science for quite some time and there's still, you know, that, that influence in some of the institutions of science. Curious if you think a theory of everything exists, firstly. Secondly, if we could know it. So that presumes that there exists one. Yeah, well, so, uh, so I mean, it depends what you mean by a theory of everything, I guess. Um, you know, uh, is there a single equation that, drives all of reality and that knowing the equation would be enough to to make a new universe if you could implement it um i i yeah i really don't know the answer um it's possible 
Um, I, I am less and less inclined to get behind the idea that there is a single most fundamental description that can be wrapped up in a way that a human brain can comprehend. Uh, you know, I think, it, you know, I was talking about the idea that that we necessarily uh, only see a subset of reality and, and only model a set of reality, okay, you know, in, in the world that we walk through, that we inhabit our own uh, subjective experience and the um, the the network of relationships that we think govern the world it's both you know in our in our own mental constructions of the world but also in you know each separate academic field these are these are slices uh, and we see that that these regularities emerge from whatever's really there and in in very particular ways we can capture those regularities and turn them into an academic field or whatever. Um, and so what physics has said is that, all right, this is what we've been doing for all of the history of, you know, human inquiry is trying to find these different ways to slice reality into, into networks of relationships. We think that all of it emerges from a single most fundamental uh, rule essentially. Um, and that might be true, but I don't think it's clear that it's true. Um, I think, you know, that might be one of the biases. Our, 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 we've trained ourselves to believe that that might be the case. But, you know, there's even s <laughs> some emerging ideas that really put to question the notion of what fundamental really means. For instance, so you know the the reductionist philosophy that we can you know, first you know, physically seek smaller and smaller elements of reality, then seek uh, deeper levels of causation uh, until we find the bottom. Um, you know, which should be ultimately the most simple, ideally. Um, so there are, there, are, there, are, there are cases where it's not true that the most simplest description of reality is the most fundamental, okay? So if you want to model, say, fluid flow, please use Bernoulli's equation rather than quantum field theory, even though... As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mm. How's the flavor? Mm. 
It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers trial pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash T-O-E. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. In principle, you could use the latter. The latter is, in principle, more fundamental. Um, so, you know, these regularities arise and and prove simpler than their substrates, the rules governing their substrates, if you wanted to do a particular calculation in them. Um, so, so as you go up in, in in size scale or in other other scales, also complexity scale, you see things simplify and then unsimplify, um, and but but all but in in a way that means that these what we would call these layers of say emergent complexity are not in in any way predictable from the lower layers. Um, so. Stephen Wolfram talks about the idea of computational irreducibility. Okay, there there are things about the universe that you can't predict without literally running the universe, and that includes some of the the incredibly beautiful and regular patterns that emerge. That um, you know, f- for example, fluid flow or life uh, that that you could never predict by looking at a quark. Um, so, so that's the first point. That um, that the I guess what what was this? You might call this Newtonian paradigm, where you know once you know how all the little billiard balls are moving around, you can predict the universe uh, is only sort of true. But in a meaningful way, it's not true. Um, so, you know, there, there are there are examples like um, all right. So let's let's dig down to something closer to the fundamental. Let's let's get into physics. Um, highly speculative physics. So, like, take the the ADS CFT correspondence, right? So the holographic principle. So. Um, so this is the idea that well let, let let me give you the sort of popular media view and the idea is that the that our universe could be a hologram uh, that's projected inwards from something happening on the the two D surface of the boundary um, and and therefore our universe is an illusion and it's that surface out there that's real um, and it's more complicated than that uh, obviously the the number of dimensions and and the curvature of the interior, but yeah. But anyway, the, the idea the idea sure, presented usually presented is that 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 we are a hologram and whatever's real is out there. Um, but that's that's absolutely not what ADSCFT is saying. What it's saying is that in what we call the bulk, which is the volume, which is which would in this case would be our universe, we it's explained by a gravitational theory. Okay, general relativity, and the surface is explained by a field theory, a conformal field theory, and it's not that 
one causes the other, the um, what ADSFT is saying is that they are dual to each other. So they are called a duality. They're equivalent descriptions of exactly the same thing, and neither is more fundamental than the other. That, to me, is part of the problem of the common purveyors of science trying to mystify the public by saying that the universe is unreal and is holographic. Well, you just said there's a duality. What makes you think that the boundary is more fundamental than the bulk space? You can't say that one is more than the other if there's a dual. Yeah, exactly right. And, um, and, and sometimes one does look more real. For example, it's, I mean, ADS-CFT is a hugely useful paradigm, even if it may not apply directly to our universe, because it's much easier to do computations in one of these representations than the other in some cases. And in other cases, the other representation is the one that's tractable. Okay. So in uh, the, um, the strong interaction limit of one where you can't do uh, calculations, you can't use, for example, perturbation theory to do calculations, like, like inside a black hole. Uh, in, on the on the other side, in this case, if you have a black hole in the in the bulk in our universe, then its representation on its surface is some um, weakly interacting structure that that you can do computations with. Okay, and so uh, so neither is more fundamental. Just sometimes one is useful, and sometimes the other is useful. Uh, and, and this isn't this isn't a fringe example. This, I mean, it's a, it's just a cool example. But these dualities. Um, which is not the sense of duality or dualism in philosophy at all. It, it, it means that that two seemingly different descriptions, uh, like wildly even contradictorily different descriptions, represent the same thing. Uh, two different stories describe the same thing. So, so string theory is rife with dualities, like at the limit of the energy scales, we see elementary strings and emergent strings sort of morph into each other. Um, but also in you know, more accepted physics, like in quantum mechanics, the idea of complementarity is a duality. Um, so, you know, usually encapsulated or summarized in uh, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, but the idea that we can represent all of matter as either a linear combination of uh, quantum fields in position space or their vibrational modes in position space, okay, and that's a representation of the universe, or equally equivalently, we can do the same thing in momentum space and they're, they're, they're very different stories about what the world looks like, but they're equivalent. And no, and no one would argue that one is more fundamental than the other. Um, well, there are some people who, <laughs> on the more, again, on the more esoteric end, who like to emphasize that it's all vibrations and it's all waves. Yeah, you can Fourier transform. So you can uh, make it discrete again. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then, and then you know, we, we, let's not even get started on the S matrix or the amplitudehedron, which uh, which are ways to describe the interactions between particles, which don't even require space and time and uh, and waves and and fall out. You know, in which you can summarize 
pages and pages of calculation with a few lines of calculation, which implies that these things should be more fundamental. But I don't think that's clear. I think that they're, they're stories about what's happening that have incredible mathematical utility. What they are is a regularity that we've discovered. Uh, you that- sound like Bernardo Castro. Have you watched much of his talks or his podcast? I've, I've seen, I think I watched your interview with Bernardo, actually. Um, I think I agree with some of what he says, and I disagree with some other. What are the agreements that you think are seen as controversial? So I, I like his characterization of um, minds as dissociative boundaries or, or, or entities agents in dissociative boundaries. So you know, my understanding is that Bernardo uh, rates consciousness as the most fundamental. Um, and so you know you, you talk about the universe as this as this thing made of consciousness and then consciousness arises in the universe and and it and so the idea of dissociative boundaries is that like you you could if you had your own internal dissociative boundaries, you could maybe have something like a, a split personality, or, or you, know, you wouldn't remember you'd done and you, and and things like that. And so the idea that it's a it's a nice characterization. Um, what I don't buy is that baseline statement that the universe, that the fundamental element of the universe is consciousness. I don't. Th- I don't see why it's needed and i don't think there's a good justification um yeah we we could go further <laughs> you want to go further as to your disagreements or your agreements or something else okay well just in the context of of what we're discussing sure. now, um so i think you know we're talking about these dual descriptions of the world uh so um you know, I would say that our minds are a like a dynamical causal system. Okay, so something describable with a set of dynamics. Sure, dynamics of you know thoughts, basically. Okay, that 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 cause and influence each other, and you could and and you know the the field of psychology. You could imagine as as uh, an extremely early version of some field where you came up with the the internal dynamics of the mind. Okay, but but still, um, so so if you describe the mind as this dynamical system where there's like genuine causal power in within that system defined within that system. Um, then, uh, then the the dual to that would be a you know our brains where you have this dynamics of neurons and action potentials. Okay, and so um, so I so you know my my uh, feeling on the matter is that that well I can't believe I'm saying what I think consciousness is, but because mm-hmm. I'm. Okay. I'm horribly unqualified, but, but I, but who's qualified? Yeah. Right. Anyone with it. <laughs> so let's go. 
so, so, so either feeling that, and, and, and plenty of people have said this before that, that uh, consciousness is what a type of information flow feels like. Uh, you know, more particularly, I think it's what a, uh, a type of data structure feels like when it tells itself a story about itself. Yeah. Do you see a circularity there? Because we're defining consciousness in terms of a so-and-so and so feels like, and then the question is, well, what does it feel? Right, right. So the hard problem. Let's let's uh, let's solve it. You know, I, I I have someone, by the way, who's premiering in two hours from now, named Terrence Deacon. Okay. Who he believes he's solved the hard problem. Several people believe they've solved the hard problem, and usually it means that they've that they have a completely different ontology. Oh, well, I'm gonna. I'm looking forward to watching it. I'm gonna. You know Terrence Deacon? Have you heard of him? As someone immersed in the exploration of physics, consciousness, and math, I recognize the importance of supporting my body and my mind. This journey of discovery led me to a remarkable find, Mosh Bars. Mosh is a venture by Maria Shriver and Patrick Schwarzenegger and is at the forefront of blending nutrition with a mission to foster brain health awareness. With six mouth-watering flavors, there's a taste for just about every palate, even a selection of plant-based options for those preferring vegan nutrition. Personally, I found the chocolate sea salt flavor to be a delightful addition to my day, post-workout especially. In fact, I recorded myself biting into a bar for the first time. Mmm. How's the flavor? Mmm. It's great. That was real. If you want to find ways to give back to others and fuel your body and your brain at the same time, Mosh Bars are a great choice for you. Head to moshlife.com slash toe to save 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers trial pack or the new plant-based trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on either the best sellers or plant-based trial pack at moshlife.com slash toe. Thank you to Mosh for sponsoring this video. Ah, name's familiar, but no. He's a linguist. Well, he's a neuroanthropologist, and he studied under Chomsky. He says he disagrees with Chomsky about everything except politics. He's extremely, extremely bright and has an extreme, what I call a Velton Shaung. It's an all-encompassing worldview, such that it's a framework through which you interpret the world. So it's more than simply a worldview. It's this philosophy that you have such that you can pose virtually any question to someone. Someone who has a Velton Shaung is someone like say Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson, you can ask Jordan Peterson a question about anything. Like, why do birds fly like that? And he would say, it's because the Oedipal mother, he has a framework. I mean, that, that can be a useful thing, but don't you think in a way it is being stuck in part of the landscape? Uh, maybe a very useful part of the landscape, but... Um... So, right, you mentioned it's extremely useful, yes. So when you don't have one, at least like for myself, it's a destabilizing place to be. You're inconstant, you're tentative, you're rudderless. But you're also not kidding yourself. Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know, because then that depends on, so does our model of reality create reality? So does that mean that if you have a model, it just is? So there's something called phenomenology? So my thought is that um, I think it's clear that at some level, information that is undergoing a certain dynamics itself feels like something. Um, and, you know, I, I think it, it is 
may be enough for that that data structure to inspect itself, keep a story of itself, uh, you know, as it as it computes its way to its next state and its next state and its next and its next state, it it has it has this self monitoring capability uh, and and ends up telling itself that it's conscious, okay, because it it, it inspects its own inspection of itself uh, at infinitum, um, and so so if um, you know if information can be conscious in some way and the universe is in at least some sense informational it it can be you know it can be thought to encode information any particle encodes some type of information even if it's only about its own existence then uh you can imagine this spectrum of consciousness uh and so the so bernardo's sort of panpsychism uh version of panpsychism is one in which he says that he says that um that the consciousness is the most fundamental element not the material um i think you can be a panpsychist and and not say that i think we you know back to our uh discussion of dualities these you, you can have two completely different stories about the world um and completely different mathematical frameworks for describing its dynamics but they are ultimately describing the same thing and i think that's the case with consciousness i think um i think you can Take, for example, a, a conscious human mind, uh, which we, we can't argue has it, has consciousness, and you start taking things away. You scale down its ability to tell stories about itself, to self-inspect. Okay, You can, for example, go on a meditation retreat and learn to be, be purely in the moment and, and only aware, and, and you can learn to suppress all of the chatter, all of the internal dialogue you can suppress all cognition uh you know essential periods to a point where you are only perceiving okay so you you still have a qualia but you're not telling yourself a story about that about that you're just you're essentially just being the data structure that your brain has assembled about the outside world without without analyzing it okay so you know that this it's, it's clear. It's it's clear that our subjective worlds are informational. Okay, that all of this detail needs to be coded. And so, so is there anything special about that information structure that's just the output of your, you know, visual cortex, et cetera, et cetera, that that you know presents you this this image of the visual world? Is that data structure conscious, uh, or or that data structure plus your you know your attention module, which is so 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 you can you can really pare things down so that you only have the 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 minimum amounts that that you know you you can possibly have and still be a person, um, and it seems that that is still conscious. Okay, so what's what's the difference then to the data structure that represents your 
the the uh, the subjective world that your brain assembled and uh, a data structure that contains similar information that's not in a person. Well, the difference is that it's not constantly telling itself a story about what it sees and it has no memory. So if you if you I mean, imagine, for example, that the entire universe was conscious and was aware of itself. You know, it told, oh, that was a star that exploded. I just made a galaxy. But then you take away that story and it just is the data structure of all this stuff. Uh, what would be the difference between it just being matter, uh, unconscious matter, and, you know, this completely memoryless, uh, you know, this thing and my argument is that there's no difference and the thing that has no memory or capacity to self-inspect isn't really conscious but that at least gives you a way to have a, a spectrum of consciousness like as soon as something starts to have both a model of the world and can tell itself a story about its model of the world then it can start telling itself it's conscious, and 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 by the way, it's not. That's not an illusion. The the whole idea that consciousness is an illusion, I think, is uh, is as as bad a fallacy as saying that the, you know, the holographic principle bulk is an illusion and the boundary is not. In that case, where the universe is conscious and it's not conscious of anything, you're saying that. It's as if there's two states of consciousness, one that's about something and then one that is just conscious, pure consciousness, and that's something that you can access when you're in meditation. Well, I feel like, you know, consciousness, I think we, I think it's a poorly defined concept. Uh, it's, you know, it, it really emerges when we get to start telling ourselves that we have it. And, and... You know, we can, we we can observe our own, our own consciousness because we are we literally are part of the data structure that this consciousness is. Okay, it's not like we're a separate you know homunculus observing the the data structure that our brain synthesizes. We are that data structure. Okay, we we that that literally is what we are, and inside that data structure, there's a model of ourselves. Okay, which we can also inspect, um, and so I think uh, consciousness is just a, it, it is, in this sense, an emergent phenomenon. But there's no no very hard line. I th I think for when it emerges, you know, I'm I started all this saying I'm no expert, and and then gave you this super. Uh, long treaties as though um i know anything but uh th this is the picture that feels the least contradictory to me uh, so then in this view is there such a thing as free will in this view yes <laughs> correct my misunderstanding then the way that i understand it is that there are some atoms moving around and occasionally that is something we call information processing that information processing is much like there's a lamp right here that is casting onto the wall. That wall is now the feeling of consciousness. That is, it's the effect and something is happening here. Now that wall doesn't cause anything with this light. The light will move around right now. It's stationary, but the light can change colors. It can get brighter. It can get smashed on the ground and that wall would change. But 
I wouldn't say that that wall has any causal influence on that. So that's what I mean when I say that it sounds like there is no free will in what has just been outlined. So please well, correct my misunderstanding. Okay, so let, let's try to talk about free will. So, the, so first of all, um, so Baha, my partner, she's a science journalist and has written a lot about these topics. Uh, I encourage you to check out her article in The Atlantic, which... Uh, Bunks, bunks some nonsense on the topic, um, but but she she always reminds me to think about these things in the context of their historical development. So so pre enlightenment, there was this idea that free will and meaning and mind were um, inextricably attached to notions like God and the immortal soul. Okay, so when when those ideas started to be questioned was the same time that um, the materialist paradigm arose, so the Newtonian worldview of, you know, atoms bouncing around in the void, perfectly predictable clockwork. So at the same time that we discarded or started to discard the spiritual, and in that gap we inserted this sort of very first and, 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 and perhaps naive um, mechanistic determinism uh, notions like free will, which were conjoined with God and the soul got thrown out with the bathwater and were replaced by the idea that that these things are epiphenomena um, of, of a you know a cold mechanistic universe. Um, so uh, so that that's one cry. <laughs> what it is is it's a it's a a, a gripe with the what I think is an oversimplification of the um, approach to, to thinking about free will, but, but all other things related to the mind also. Um, so, so let me explain why my view doesn't uh, suggest that free will is an illusion. Um, and so what does it mean? It means free will is means that you, you make your, your choices are your own. They're not forced on you by something else. Uh, and, and for any choice you make, you could have chosen otherwise. And, you know, the standard argument is that, that your choices are not yours because they're determined by the particles that you're made of. Okay. You couldn't have chosen otherwise. So this is the, this is the, the, the argument that you hear, uh, I won't mention any names, um, because you, know, you so you couldn't have chosen otherwise because the whatever the exact position and velocity of all of your subatomic particles uh, was set and had to evolve according to the laws of physics, or that you know if that you know if the, those particles have some fundamental randomness, then the randomness is still not free will. Okay, so that's the the argument. <laughs> Um, and first of all, let me say that that you know that picture of physics is you know it's, it's right in a sense. Okay, so I I I believe that that subatomic particles evolve according to the Schrodinger equation, etc. Uh, and the subatomic particles have no idea that they're in a brain, or that they're part of a choice, or that they represent a data structure that's part of that that's, that that data structure feels. Uh, as part of a choice. Um, but the problem with this reductionist argument is that it's 
it's messing up its definitions and in particular its definitions of causality. So if we think about um, the world as having these kind of layers of complexity, okay, you have physics driving the atoms and chemistry driving the molecules and biology driving the cells, then you could you could say something like, so if you want to talk about causality here in terms of the hierarchies of, of emergence, um, then you could say that that quarks and electrons cause atoms, atoms cause molecules, molecules cause cells, cells cause apples and brains, and brains cause minds, right? Um, but this is a type of causation, and it's it's like this cross-hierarchical causation. But I would argue that there's a real fundamental difference between that type of causation to what you might call an, an intra-hierarchical causation that defines the dynamics within a given layer. Can you give me an example? All right. So you can say that you know, there's, there's this causal power whereby a cell is, or a, say a neuron is caused by the molecules that it's formed of. Um, it, it is an epiphenomenon of those molecules which in turn are epiphenomena of their atoms, et cetera. But it's also entirely meaningful to say that an action potential in a neuron causes a downstream neuron to fire, right? So that's that's a, a reasonable statement, okay? A, a neuron fires, one that it's attached to fires, and you can, you can and, and, it, and it, it makes total sense and, and, in a real sense, it's true to say that the first neuron caused the firing of the second. Um, it's less useful to say that, like, the wiggle of a quantum string on the Planck scale caused a downstream neuron to fire, even if the even if the quantum string is the let's call it the hierarchical cause or one of the electrons in the first action potential. That's like a a roundabout and relatively inane approach to talking about causation. So there's this this kind of bottom-up causation in which different levels in uh, in the scale of uh, you know uh, physical scale or complexity scale are are generated by the the lower layers. But there's a different type of causation within the layer. Okay, so, um, and 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 within each of these hierarchical layers, you have a a dynamics that is, in a sense, independent of the the layer below that generated it. Okay, so you can, um, you know, I, I mentioned Bernoulli's equation and fluid flow. So you you have this whole field of hydrodynamics, which is beautiful and in in a sense it's causally closed like you can predict anything about the behavior of fluids using these rules and it it does matter what the properties of the the particles in that layer are and those properties of the properties of those particles are generated by the layer below but once you know the properties of those particles you don't care about the the, the the detailed physics of the, the level below you you are you are in that layer and the rules of that layer are in a sense closed and independent okay so 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 brains 
have a dynamics of neural activity. Okay, it's a physical system. They behave like some type of neural network. We can we can even simulate it. Okay, current neural networks miss an awful lot, but in principle, we'd be able to run the 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 dynamics of the brain with a different substrate. We can run them. We could run. We one day probably will be able to run these in silico, and it and that dynamical system, the system of of neural activity will be independent of the substrate once we figure out what that dynamics is. Man, Matt, you, oh, <laughs> the, I, I don't know if you realize you're saying such controversial statements at, at, at saying in principle. So for instance, you're saying in principle, we could simulate the brain substrate independence. <laughs> like, who knows? I mean, well, that's like a huge open. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going understand, to, I understand. I'm going to crapple over the expression in principle, I think, because um, so, <laughs> Yeah, uh, who cares? We're just talking and people who are listening just realize that none of us have the correct words. And in order for us to just in order for us to convey anything that's non-trivial, we're going to have to flummox and flounder. Okay, well, I, I'm happy. I'm happy to put myself out there. I think we will be able to simulate the brain, but it might be a, a really long time away because there's so much that goes sure, on. Sure, sure. And, and the point is that once we once we figure out those dynamics, it'll be independent of the substrate, silicon or meat. In the case, all right. So may, maybe we can agree that that the dynamics within a layer are their own thing. They're they're in a, it, it, and and the idea of cause within one of those layers, like, is different to the cause that generates one layer from the layer below it. Okay. Uh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Okay. So you have you have you have this dynamics of cause and effect uh, in you know, in biology or in an ecological system, okay, it's true that reintroducing wolves to the Yellowstone National Park caused the deer population to become under control, okay? That's that's a totally meaningful statement, and it would be absurd to try to do the same thing with quarks. No, okay, yes, yes. Yeah. Quarks to deers, right? So, sure. so you have these... these Dynamical systems where where and and the the cause in that sense is it is like we should have a different word for it. But um, so we're mixing our definitions of the intrasystem versus the intersystem causation. So we're still not we're still not at free will yet. So um, our conscious experience may be emergent from the actions of our neurons. It probably is in some sense, um, but. In another sense, it is dual to our the actions of our neurons. Okay, so the the our neurons have a, a dynamics which you know you, you can at some level explain their behavior, but the uh, that and they generate this pattern of information that's. You know, it tells a story about itself, et cetera. And, and so um, in a way, our minds or, 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 you know, the description of our minds is just another way of casting neural mm-hmm. dynamics that, 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 it's, that, that is a, you know, it's, it's essentially a duality. It is dual to that system. But in a way, you could argue that it's more fundamental, right? So if in... The broadest sense, our minds are the result of a computation. Then, then our minds are also a dynamical system. 
independent of the substrate. Um, so a set of elements, in this case, thoughts linked by a set of rules. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and thoughts are, are symbolic representations. And so you can come up with a, a language that, that, that manipulates these symbolic representations and tell stories with them. Okay. That's, you know, in, uh, sense kind of what, what a mind is, um, and, and a bunch of other stuff. Okay. So in a, in a sense, psychology is the science of understanding the dynamics of that system. And it's to some extent mappable, maybe never completely. Um, but it, you know, you, but you, you could write down the dynamics of the mind without referencing neurons. Okay, just as you could write down the dynamics of the neurons without referencing electrons. But and the reason I said that that in a sense the the uh, the way of looking at neural dynamics, which is the 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 dual of it, which is the subjective experience, is more predictively powerful than the neural dynamics themselves. And in you know, some way of looking at it, that's more fundamental. Um, there are things you can predict about what a brain will do and and what an organism how an organism will behave that you could only get by looking at the uh the the thought dynamics like the mental dynamics and you could never get by trying to look at a few neurons and and guess what they're going to do okay so is this not a difference between what we can do and what is i don't think so um so All right, so so we so first of all, may, uh, let's uh, you know put a pin in the idea that the mind is this its own dynamical system, potentially independent of its substrate, uh, and and understanding the dynamics of the mind is better than understanding the dynamics of neurons for for many many things, uh, but. Does it mean? Does that mean uh, that? Yeah, like like you said, is the mind is the, is this just our impression that you know it's we can't do this. We we can't, for example, predict someone else's detailed behavior. You know uh, their inclination to fall in love with you know particular. Types of people based on looking at their looking at their neurons or looking at their quarks. Okay, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but but okay. So now we get to this idea of in principle. Yeah. Okay. Is it? That's the title of the podcast. <laughs> uh, is it even in principle possible to do so? Um, and I would argue there also no. Um, it's in principle possible to predict some human behavior by trying to model the physical aspect of the brain. Um, but I don't think it's possible to, uh, so, so here, here things get a little bit messy. So, so you could predict someone's behavior just by knowing them well. Does that mean they have no free will that they couldn't potentially do otherwise? Uh, you could predict someone's inclination to certain types of behavior by knowing you know about any 
neuropathologies that they might have. Okay. So, so for sure, we, we aren't, uh, you know, the epitomes of free will. We, we often fail to exercise free will or we are predictable. But the idea that free will is an illusion because brains are mechanistic, I think is a little fallacious. And, and the reason is that, so, so if a, a brain. Because of that dual notion? Well, not, not even. I think we can go to, to physical here. Like there are physical ish reasons here. So, so uh, the brain, the idea is that, that your actions are predetermined and predictable because the, they're entirely determined by the configuration of physical matter and and so on. Um, but but then you know I want to ask, to whom is the brain predictable and predetermined? Okay, to to, to what observer and what reference frame? Uh, so if you have any sufficiently complex system, like the brain, uh, you the dynamics are coupled across multiple physical scales like so so um so for example uh a, a an important part of the decision mechanism in the brain is the so-called Breishark potential which is just the the way the brain uh it it's uh basically the the correlated noise in brain signal that the that the brain actually uses to as a sort of a tiebreaker in decision making um and it and it partially drives the dynamics in ways that we don't very well understand at all because it's super new that we figured out that can you repeat the name of the potential it's, it's the Breishark potential it's also called the readiness potential okay yeah uh and you you want to look at um Aaron Sherger's work, uh, and uh, and actually, <laughs> Bahar wrote an article on this. I'm, I'm just mentioning that because I'm super familiar with it now. But it's a, just one example of uh, how uh, that you have dynamics influence in, in complex and even pseudo chaotic systems. You have these dynamics linked across, you know, multiple scales of these hierarchies and and. and in that case, it it becomes essentially impossible to predict behavior based on the uh, you know the smallest piece, of the, like the smallest elements of the substrate, whatever the 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 atoms. Um, and okay, so you have this you know system that that is in you know, partially chaotic. Uh, and it's well known that these things can't be predicted by, by without without infinite computation. Okay, I think I think this is a manifestation of this computational irreducibility. Also, um, okay, so okay, so so my question is, what observer or what reference frame could predict your actions perfectly by knowing the exact state of all the quantum fields in your brain um so so you could Im you could imagine you know some uh super advanced 
alien that could somehow perfectly scan your brain and and get that and then run a simulation of your brain at the same time but but even that i think here it, it, like the, the very nature of quantum mechanics makes that challenging okay so so you literally need to track every bit of quantum information in the most complex systems to make a perfect prediction okay so maybe you can make some predictions but it's not even practically impossible it's in it's probably even in principle impossible okay so you you have things like the no cloning theorem which forbids you from making a perfect copy of quantum information um which is what you would need to do to make a perfect prediction so 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 I, I think in a meaningful way, it's in principle not possible for any possible observer to perfectly predict your choice. Okay. okay. It is possible for impossible observers like Laplace's demon, who knows the exact position and velocity of every particle in the universe. Uh, so, from the perspective of Laplace's demon, you have no free will, but Laplace's demon is a mythical entity and um and and like other mythical entities i don't think we should rate something an illusion because a mythical entity could in in principle predict your um your behavior so there's this guy named david walpart i don't know if you know him but he's in santa barbara i believe and he has the limits on inference machines which says that even laplace's demon in Newtonian mechanics can't exist. I agree that Laplace's demon cannot exist. I think even relativity forbids Laplace's demon because there's an infant, there's a there's a limit to how quickly it, it could anyway, like this is yeah, a whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. other topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know, so so you know, long story short, I think free will is real in a meaningful sense okay we're like going down the definition of real is like a whole other podcast but free will is real in a meaningful sense because choice is a fundamental dynamical component in a particular dynamical system whose behavior is independent of its substrate and whose behavior is not fully predictable in the context of its substrates by 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 mapping at substrates um in a in a in a way that is possible for any entity that that could exist uh but if you choose to not believe in free will then at least you have that choice yeah so, okay great well man there's so much that we can talk about okay how about instead of delving more deeply into i'll, I'll just tell you the one thought i'll just tell you one of the thoughts why is this notion of to who important for instance, we can say there is a computer here. When we consider that to be an objective fact, we don't say this computer is here to who, unless you are someone who believes that the observer creates the reality. So let's disregard that interpretation and say there's an objective reality. So why is it that we're saying free will exists to who? Why can't we just say free will exists in the same way that this computer exists Yeah, I mean, we live in a we live in a relative universe. Particles have a relative existence. You know, uh, uh, Hawking radiation only exists 
if you're a certain distance away from a black hole. UNRU radiation only exists if you're uh, accelerating. Uh, so, so there. I mean, there is a, a sense in which um, the frame of reference is 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 critical. Um, and Even for like non-noisy. So there's something noisy about the the radiation and the UNRWA radiation, so the Hawking radiation and that one. Yeah, well, I, th I think I think so. Maybe I, I do. I, I don't know, but there's there is something non-trivial about the relativity of existence in, in terms of matter, uh, for sure. Um, and so, I mean, this is this is something I don't think. We've properly wrapped our heads around. You know, may, maybe it's as confusing as the measurement problem. The idea that the universe can look, can and does look radically different depending on your frame of reference. Um, and the only thing that is consistent is the self-consistency of the universe itself. It, like, no, no matter what changes, you know, based on. Mm -hmm your frame of reference, how you choose to make measurements, for example, in, you know, things like a, a, a bell test, Th these, these things radically can radically change what the unit, what universe you see. But the, the, the one thing that never change changes is that the universe remains self-consistent for all observers. Okay. Can you explain what that means? And is that different than the statement that the laws of physics are the same? Um, so in the case of, well, I mean, the simple case of, of relativity, like let's take the simple case of the twin paradox where, uh, in, in, so this is this thought experiment in relativity where a pair of twins, one jumps in a spacecraft and, zips off at a large fraction of the speed of light and you know hangs comes back several years later from the perspective of the twin on at home and um the 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 twin at home has aged and the twin who travel is much younger because time ticked slower for the twin who was traveling um because of their relative speed okay so from the point of view of the the traveling twin they didn't think that their clock was ticking. Okay, uh, they you know they were looking back home and they thought that at home the clock was ticking fast and um, and from but that no wait on no <laughs> I should know this stuff. Um, so the, the 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 so 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 this is a this is a. So this, this is a so-called parallel. Oh, you should go. You should watch this PBS Space Time yeah, yeah. video on that. Yeah, uh, the, 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 the way it works is that 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 when you observe a clock that's traveling at some speed, that clock appears to tick slow. All right. So so fast-moving objects, the time slows down. So so both twins see each other's clock as ticking slow. All right. Because the spaceship is moving fast, but then for the for the astronaut twin earth appears to be moving backwards quickly because you know velocity speed is relative there's no preferred inertial frame of reference so earth it races away that twin's clock seems to slow down and yet when 
when the twin gets back home after that long trip, the the twin who stayed at home, so it, ha- it has to end up being consistent, which one aged more than the other? And the answer is that there is an answer, that there is a self-consistent answer. When they get home, both of them agree that the twin who stayed home aged more. Uh, but h- how can that work if both of them saw the same change in each other's clock? Um, and they both of the twins have an answer for that, and their answers are different, but they lead to the same conclusion. Okay, the twin mm-hmm. who's at home sees the traveling twin's clock ticks slower, and so that the traveling twin ages less. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and gets home. Meanwhile, the the one at home is waiting and and getting older, and his twin comes back much younger. Okay, because the less time passed. But for the traveling twin, they watch the the the, the twin at home, uh, and and they watch the, the the twin at home's clock tick slower. So in fact, the traveling twin feels themselves aging faster, aging faster, until the moment that they turn around. Okay, so in order to turn around and come home, they have to accelerate. And the other thing that uh, Einstein's Relativity tells us is that if you are deep in a gravitational field, your clock ticks slower. So the amount that that twin has to accelerate in order to return home causes their clock to slow down enough that that from their perspective, the twin who was at home not only caught up to them, but aged a lot more. Okay. Yeah. So they both have different stories about why um, why they both agree that the traveling twin is younger than the the stay-at-home twin. Um, and so Kurt, how did we get to this? This was this was in service of a point. Okay, so firstly I was asking about what does it mean to be self-consistent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that so so the universe will always conspire to be self-consistent, and 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 that uh, observers will, you know, ultimately agree. Um, and I have so many questions here. That's even the case with that's even the case with particles. Like uh, if you if you see unrow radiation, I can't remember what the solution to this one is. Um, Someone else doesn't see unrow radiation, but they see, yeah. It's like if you if you accelerate fast enough, then you'll you'll be incinerated by what what's the equivalent of Hawking radiation? Uh, it's a type of horizon radiation. You'll be, in, but someone who is not accelerating doesn't see your unrow particles, and yet does see you incinerated. So why does the the person who's not accelerating see you incinerated? I think the answer is you they see you being incinerated by something else like the drag on the quantum fields or something I I, I don't recall but there, but there was a, there's a neat answer to it like the universe keeps conspiring to give us these neat answers that everyone ultimately is going to agree even if the universe that they the, Think they live in looks wildly different to the universe of the next person. The the, 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 consist, the consistency conspires to always be there, um, and I think there's a mystery there, and I don't know what. It- okay, so Matt, 
a couple questions occurred to me. So one, when we use the word self-consistent to apply to the universe, I mean, why can't we just remove the word self and say the universe is consistent? So that's number one. And then number two, what would it look like if there was inconsistency? Does it mean that there'd be disagreement between us because there already is disagreement? And then if we're saying there's no scientific inconsistency, well then science by its nature is intersubjective agreement, which means we've had disagreements, we've pushed them aside. And so it's like saying we agree because I've removed the disagreements. So why do we use the word self-consistent? Secondly, we what the heck would it ever look like to be inconsistent? Right. So by self-consistent, I mean internally consistent, um, which means that, I mean, you, you can imagine consistency is in consistent with someone's beliefs about what the universe should be, but that's not the case. Um, and the universe, when, you know, to for carefully made measurements and and it it is always it always obeys its own rules but the the particular rule that it seems to be obeying may be different for one observer or another but but, but all observers will obey will will see that the universe obeys its rules its own rules um so in the example of the twin paradox the one twin ob observes the universe obeying the rules of time dilation due to uh, due to uh, special relativity, and the other observes the universe obeying the rule of time dilation due to you know, acceleration by the equivalence principle of general relativity. Uh, at least in one way of framing that paradox, um, in in the case of the Unruh radiation, uh, they everyone. Everyone sees the accelerating person uh, incinerate, okay? And so it's not like one person sees them survive and the other person sees them and, and accelerate it, okay? So which would lead to a paradox, okay? So the universe never generates paradoxes. It always, you, you will always find that, that it has obeyed its own you know, it's it's laws of nature. Uh, if it doesn't, then it, it, it's us who haven't figured out the right laws of nature. But but the, the thing is, two observers may see it doing that in different ways. And the the original example of this is is good old electromagnetism, where um, you know, a a, a moving electric charge generates a magnetic field. Um, but we know that motion is relative. So if you're if you're moving with the electric charge, you should see no magnetic field. But that magnetic field has an effect. Okay, it it, it causes other charged particles to move, um, and and so that it would be inconsistent if one person saw a moving charged particle generate a magnetic field and the effect of that magnetic field, you know, re resulting in the motion of yet more particles and person traveling with the magnetic field sees that sees no such thing that would be an inconsistency and, and a paradox in a sense um because there would be an irreconcilable disagreement um about their observations but there are but the, the reality is that um the person traveling with the charge does see a force on the uh surrounding particles but to them they they would argue that the force was from the electrostatic field, which is the force 
that that you know the the so so the, the so that that's an example. But they, but nonetheless, the universe has obeyed its own rules. It, it's just the different observers would disagree on which rule, <laughs> which rules it obeyed, um, and and no paradoxes. Interesting. So that's what I mean by that. Um, what was the what would it look like to be inconsistent? And then also when I when we say that the world is consistent, like I mentioned, we do have disagreements, and there is such a thing as someone seeing something that you did not see, and we generally consider those to be mental illnesses. But I'm sure there exist other cases that are not so extreme, though I can't, though none come to mind. And in which case, would that be an like scientific? We'd say well, scientifically and so on. Like I mentioned, you just remove the qualities that we dislike, and then we say they have no qualities we dislike. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, to to test a, to test consistency, the 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 result from both observers has to come back to one observer. So 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 you, one observer needs to test the con- consistency, and um, that consistency check would be that ultimately all of the incoming information agrees, um, like. Uh, so in the twin paradox, both of them agree that the stay-at-home twin aged and the astronaut twin uh, stayed young, but you know they 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 won't know that until they talk to each other about it, and and then each of them ind- independently has a self-consistent model of the world. Oh, my brother returned, and is younger to my vision and also tells me that they agree with that assessment okay so th- so if your 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 brother came back and told you that wait no i feel myself as being old and you look young then that would be an inconsistency okay so the the data that that's coming into your your head has to um, has to line up, and and it should line up. And, and you know, maybe this is just an axiom of of science that that um, that the universe is internally consistent or self consistent. And I think it, you know, it it's reasonable to say that it is one of the axioms that we just have to start with. But it it is stunning how the the range of circumstances where it demonstrates itself to be correct in ways that you know the number of paradoxes seeming paradoxes that have arisen and have not had a clear solution but infallibly a solution appears. Okay, speaking of consistency, does Gödel's incompleteness theorem have anything to say about physics or the pos- the existence of a toe? Yeah, it sure feels like it should, doesn't it? You know, um, how how does it go again? No system of axions. Is it no self-consistent system of axions? No formal language uh, can prove all of the truths that it can represent. Yeah, there will always exist at least one truth. That's yeah. unprovable from the set of axioms if it's consistent and it's strong enough to encode the the basic arithmetic that we take for granted. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it. I, I would say maybe. Um, so, I mean, the, the idea. So, let's assume that there is a ground truth to reality. That there is a a a baseline fact about reality that um, explains why there's something rather than nothing, why it behaves the way it does, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, so in, in any formal language that we can come up with, including math, there's no guarantee that that, that, um, that ground truth is, is provable because there are always some that are not. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't see it as a reason to be too despondent. Um, because if a uh, a truth is not provable in one formal system, then it may be in others. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, so I, I'd say I'd say the 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 risk more is that um, we either that singular ground truth doesn't exist okay so it, it it may really be that that there's this sort of relativity of frameworks and there's no singular framework in which we can express the, you know, the this sort of what people have you know wanted to find this up the idea of this final theory that that there's you know in a sense no ultimate theoretical ground beneath our feet, um, which is, to me, both a bit terrifying. It gives me vertigo to think about it. Yeah, yeah I, I just had some of that as well. But it's also cool, man, because <laughs> then when you, when you think about what we are in such a universe, you know, where it's like where we're, we're this layer of emergent complexity that's bootstrapped up from nothing and you know it's it's now to us to explore this um this this crazy phenomenon of, of reality and and try to characterize it as best we can with no um you know like the idea that there's no ground truth there's certainly no fundamental meaning uh, in that picture, there's there's only the meaning that we impose on it. Um, but if you think about humans as explorers, you know we uh, have broken free from our bounds um, on on so many levels. And and you know for most of our history, it was the it was physical bounds. You know we we explored the world. Okay, then we left the world and and went to other worlds. Well, the moon. Um, but with our science, we've explored the physical universe to its boundaries. Uh, there's also this other type of exploration that that you know think about. So we we kind of live in these day to day subjective worlds, which are these like these mini games that I sort of talked about. The 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 idea we just try to find the regularities that are convenient enough, and and those are imposed on us by evolution too. Like where where we 
believe in a world where there's space and time and hierarchies of objects and there are relationships between these things, forces, et cetera, which is just one very selective way of casting reality, but uh, but it's also a very natural one. And it's the one that we, that we were born into in the same way we're born in a country. Um, but we have broken free from that bound too, and we're capable of like literally arbitrary abstraction and exploring all of the ways to to frame reality and and none of them are better than any other in terms of more fundamental so we're, we're we are adrift um but which is and and you mentioned this earlier but it's a it's really a terrifying thing you know how how do you choose a worldview how do you anchor yourself down and say right this is my worldview this is how i'm going to interpret everything and 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 choose my actions you know i i would say that double down on the power of this relativity on the power that you have of having cut yourself loose from these you know these the bonds of the framework that you are born into, your your you know your uh, surfer in possibility space. Um, to me, that's actually uh, something you can put an anchor in. Um, Explain that. Well, you can put an anchor in the fact that you are in in, in, in the in the the so. In your, in, I mean, you can take pride in your knowledge, in your ability to, you know, have this meta awareness that that um, a worldview is at some level an arbitrary choice, and and you can see that there are many possible worldviews, and you, you know, so I, I'm not saying that. That I can do this, but it. But I, but I can see that it that this could be an admirable um, type of existence is to to see these uh, these different you know local minima in the landscape, each one a different belief system and 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 worldview and idea about what reality is. Um, but but knowing the landscapes there, and even at some level being free to move um is um it's just it's just damn cool man i i think it's an it's and it's a unique um quality of human beings um it's what makes us i think true general intelligences although we have we have deep constraints and we we have to you know, fight a lot of our inclinations to to do one thing over another. In many cases, we uh, we still have the capability to to uh, to see all this stuff, to see all the to see all of the different f- frameworks in which the universe can be seen, um, and to in some way explore them um, to define ourselves and. Um, yeah, I feel like just that that fact is is its own meta worldview. Is this one of the reasons you 
started the film. And by the way, your film is called Inventing Reality. So Inventing. I imagine that several of the themes we talked about will be covered in the yeah, film. Exactly. What was the impetus behind the film? So the so Bahar and I were planning to make a show together. Um, so she's a science journalist, um, and and you know I I'm I'm an emerging science communicator. Um, and two million subscribers and is emerging. Geez. <laughs> well, in terms of my skills, maybe, um, and so. We, we were planning to make uh, a show. It was going to be called The Reality Show, um, and it was going to be a, a you know a riff on reality, reality TV, but really exploring. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, it was going to be a fun way to look at how people are exploring the, the nature of reality, and this was this was like five years ago. Um, yeah. So when you say you were working on a show, you mean a show like on TV or Netflix or? We, we were, you know, it was, we were brainstorming many things. It was maybe going to be. Um, a YouTube show because that's what I knew. Um, it, 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 whatever stuck, uh, and then we got distracted. You know, I got I got um, distracted by my research program, um, and it became possible to to do that and space time, which um, we can talk about next time when we speak, which is the crisis sure. in cosmology because there's so much that I would love to know about that. Absolutely, um, and uh, so so it's it's just. That was something that we have been talking about for a long time, and and you know also talking about these questions and and speaking uh, into these together. But but also on the other side, with um, uh, Andrew Kornhaber and Eric Brown, who are the producers of Space Time, we've been talking for a long time about doing something big. Um, in terms of reaching um, a, a bigger audience and uh, you know what we would want to say to a bigger audience um, and how we can just do something you know really cool with what what we thought was was this this affordance we we uncovered which is the appetite for um, the depth and you know some level of authenticity. Um, so, so these two projects merged into this film, Inventing Reality, um, and we uh, we were very lucky to ha uh, have a um, well, I guess a, a fan of the show, but now a friend um, offer to match funds. Um, up to four hundred thousand dollars, actually. So we wow, great, all right. Time to try to crowdfund this, and and we, you know, the reason we wanted to do that, the reason we didn't want to, um, I mean, it, you know, PBS is awesome, but this this kind of had to be something independent um, because we we want we wanted absolute absolute creative freedom. They're a great partner for space time, but we wanted this one. It had to be absolute creative freedom, and we also realized that uh, that that the appetite for this could actually let us fund it. Um, uh, so, so that's what we're doing. We're, so, what's the website? So it's in we 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 have a Indiegogo 
crowdfunding. So Indiegogo, if I was to search inventing reality, it would come up? Sure, hope so. Well, maybe, maybe. Let me do so right now. Yeah, okay, I see it. I see it. Okay, Matt, I'm going to be donating to this. Oh, good. Thank you. Well, I want to see this made. So, um, we, we're going to do our best. We're one day into the campaign. By the time I guess this video is out, we'll be a little more than that. Let me read some of this, if you don't mind, because this is interesting to the listeners. Are space, time, and particles even real? Hey, if you thought Donald Hoffman was <laughs> allowing your mind to be untrammeled in, in a positive or negative sense, then he's he's adding particles to this mix. Matt is adding particles. Oh, particles are definitely not real, Kurt. <laughs> I can tell you that now. I gotta I gotta drive home and function. So <laughs> that is reductionism a dead end? Can physics ever hope to find ground truth? Interesting. Interesting. So it seems to me like even in this conversation of there are there may not be ground truths, even that statement alone may be a ground truth of sorts. So it's a, it's a, such a tricky statement to make that there are none, that we can say that there are none of a certain class. So that's why I like this yeah, yeah, phrasing yeah, exactly. here. There yeah, are, the, can physics terms. ever hope to find ground truth? And for people who are fans of the Toll podcast, something I talk about frequently is abigenosis, which means how do you combine... Basically, science has evolved. It's not, it's not the same that it was 300 years ago. So then the question is, what is it evolving to? And can other modes of knowing, quote-unquote knowing, be integrated with science? And so I call that, in a tongue-in-cheek manner, abigenosis, which is gnosis of the West and abige, I forget the, the root word of the East. But it's mm -hmm. not as if that, that's the only two. Maybe there's, maybe there's four. Maybe there's five different ways of integrating knowledge. Anyway, so if you're interested in that, can physics ever hope to find the ground truth? That'd be interesting to you. What is the role of the of the observer in quantum mechanics? Okay, that's like a central theme. This is, uh, did you, what did you do, man? Did you just copy all the, did you go to the toe description and create the the, the ideal movie? No, man, we, we just have the same curiosities because. I know, I'm just kidding around, man. We have the I'm right curiosity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. These are the questions. I have a personal question for you. As you start to investigate this further and further, do you find that you're questioning, you at first were thinking, how do I unify quantum mechanics or, or quantum field theory with gravity? It's like, okay, that's the most fundamental question. Then you get to ideas of what the heck does it mean to cause? What does it mean to be real? What does it mean to mean? Do you find that that's the case for you? It's paralyzing, but... I guess you have to power through, of course, yeah. And I think it's important. Um, I mean, the, the key is once you do that, staying on track, you know, you can't follow one line of reasoning and, and well, you can follow one line of reasoning and be diverted at, at every definition. Um, and, you know, this is what makes smart people smart is they're able to construct these these chains of reasoning and, you know, flag their potential, you know, uncertainties, biases, definitional uh, uncertainties along the way, and then come back and build build the the edifice of their understanding. But it's it's it can be really paralyzing for sure. Um, what does mean even mean? <laughs> I don't think I thought that one, but now I will. Here's something that I asked Noam Chomsky. It's a similar question that I asked you. It's that in order to know what something means, do you have to know what it not what it doesn't mean? So in order for you to understand what a cat is, does that mean you have to point out instances of non-cats? 
He said yes. But then to me, this there's something defeating about that. And it's defeating in, in, a, yeah. in the sense that he says, we don't have a definition of meaning. So how are you supposed to know if something yeah. is meaningless without presupposing that you know what meaning is? Uh, I mean, maybe, yeah, right. I mean, meaning is about a correlation between two things, and in particular between some, you know, informational representation and the thing itself, I suppose. Um, in, in a simple sense, you know, this word means this animal, and both of them have some informational correlate in your brain. Uh, and so it's the pointers between these. Ah, interesting. Entities, right? um, but I, but I, I, I am sure that Noam Chomsky has thought all through this in a lot of detail and means something deeper when he says we don't know what meaning means. I think that's. I think it's the case that Noam Chomsky's whatever people think about him politically, I think he's absolutely sharp, like a sharp as a thumbtack at ninety-two. Sharper than most people are at their prime, and he's ninety-two or ninety-three. I was even talking to Terence Stephen, who disagreed. Like genius, no, no question. Yeah. So, just as an ending, as an ending statement, there's the hard problem of meaning. At least this is what I call it. There's something called the symbol grounding problem. So you can look this up. It said it means how is it that when we say the word pen, we mean pen? How is that word ever? How does that word point to a pen? What does the pointing mean? That's something that yeah doesn't I, get much my, attention. My feeling is so ultimately it has to be to something in your you know in your brain or in your conscious experience, and it, it's really hard to pin down because you know what you have a single neuron whose firing means you've thought of pen. That's that itself is not very meaningful um, because the neuron is you know. Uh, Tentacly lipid layer uh, structure. It doesn't mean pen. So, so the meaning has to arise in a different way. And I think the only way to me that makes sense is that the the, the representation of pen in in your head comes has its entire existence in the connection of all of the things that you relate to penness and and um you know it's it's function it's shape and and all of these have have representations elsewhere in your head and and it, it's in the combination of these that you get the notion of the pen but then you ask for each of those other things like okay you need you need to connect ink what about ink how does ink it does ink have no that itself is also this connection of representation so once you strip away all of those uh representations the pen vanishes there, there, there isn't even you know a, a a single neuron left where <laughs> that that uh that that meant pen that now has no qualities that, that there's nothing and so um that's what that's what it, it feels like um which is again uh you know an ungrounding notion um, that that meaning only exists in the relationship between the properties that def that that um, you know yeah so 
So that's uh, my. Now that word ungrounding, did you, would you use that purposefully? Cause I called, I mean, cause I referenced the symbol grounding problem or did you just use that word? Uh, I didn't mean own? to copy you, but I might. No, 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 it's not copying me. It's actually the word that is appropriate. And, and, but it's, there's also a technical oh, okay. meaning of that word and okay. the conversation with Terrence Deacon, which is actually premiering in about an hour or so talks specifically about that. It's difficult to say what grounding is, but he, and, and does it mean in that context, grounding to some kind of you know, neural structure or a neural correlate? As far as I understand, grounding is something physical. And so, What's meant by the word pen is ungrounded is that there's nothing that you can see from the symbols of the word pen that grounds it to the word pen, but it has something to do with it being grounded in something physical. Matt, thank you. Thank you so much, man. Listen, Kurt, it was an absolute pleasure. And based on who you've had on this podcast and and the brilliant conversations you've managed to get out of them also, which is no mean feat. Um, it, it's an honor. So the honor is mine, man. Like I, I, I've been watching you for years. I, I watch you as I go to sleep. I know that sounds creepy. <laughs> I watch it before I sleep. Yeah. And, and so it's, and I've been doing that for years and, and I learned from you and several, perhaps the majority of the audience has plenty to credit to you in terms of their knowledge. So thank you. Well, I, I, I was just communicating it. So glad I got some across. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.